Amen. If you would, please turn to Ecclesiastes. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, and we are reading verses 14 to 17 this morning. Ecclesiastes 8.14. After this, we'll actually take a break from Ecclesiastes and spend some time in the Psalms. Some of you might be looking for that. Again, the Psalms are actually much lighter than the book of Ecclesiastes. But Psalms has its sort of its dark moments as well. But Ecclesiastes has its joy too. Ecclesiastes 8:14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil for the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night does one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we do pray and ask that you would take your word and plant it deep and massage it into our hearts May your word accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. Lord, and I am powerless to do so, and so we are dependent on your spirit to do this work, but also help us to take ownership for what we are responsible for and help us to take this word, to take it with us throughout our week and see how we might apply it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I always find it intriguing to, when I think about the fact that I oftentimes put my trust in things that I don't quite understand. I can look at my watch from time to time and always trust that it'll tell me the right time as long as the battery's still working, even though I don't understand all the intricate components that make the, wor- the watch work and tell time consistently. Or flying, and as another example, it continues to be the safest mode of travel, and yet many people don't understand exactly how a plane can take off the ground and stay elevated above the ground thousands of miles above the earth and land safely. There are many other things that we don't quite understand where we put our trust in these things. It's not only that, but in many cases, we don't really care to know or to understand how these things work as long as they work. This also translates into our own personal lives as well. Where we come into life and we have certain expectations, we trust certain things to work out in a certain way, and sometimes expectations go unmet, sometimes things don't work out the way that we should expect. So this is sort of the case here in this passage in Ecclesiastes 
And considering these things, the teacher firstly makes this a strange commendation. Beginning in verse 14, it says that there's a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. So another way to say that is that there are the righteous people who get what the wicked deserve, and there are the wicked people in the world who receive what the righteous deserve. Right, we know this to be the case. Sometimes we see it in the news. Sometimes we see it in our own personal lives. Maybe somebody getting something that they didn't quite actually earn or work for. This is why the book of Ecclesiastes is one of the most challenging books, I'm convinced, in the entire Bible. Not because of its theological content, not because of its grammar or anything in its content, or how it sort of puts forward theological truths and realities. But the reason I think the book of Ecclesiastes is such a difficult book is because, as I said before, you might remember, is that it, it forces us to come face to face with things that we know to be true, but we don't want to admit is true. Things that we don't really want to think about, much less do we want to talk about. Difficult things, harsh realities, that we see in the world perhaps have happened to us that, again, we don't really want to address. And so Ecclesiastes forces us, unless you decide to skip the book entirely, but the Ecclesiastes forces us to confront those things and to think about those things. And one of the things that Ecclesiastes is telling us, at least in this passage, is this is, this is the kind of world that we live in where you might see the wicked receive a righteous man's reward and the wicked person receive the wicked man's consequences. When we come into the world, we carry out our lives with certain expectations. We have this, we expect this thing, and we have every reason to expect that this is going to happen in the way that we expect it, and for whatever reason, it doesn't turn out that way. That if we follow very carefully the instructions that are laid out for us, that at the end we should have this thing, or this should be the finished product, but sometimes that isn't the case. We have this expectation, and rightly so, that laws are there to promote what is just and what is good and to bring consequences on the unrighteous and the wicked, and it isn't always the case. We have this expectation that one plus one should always equal two and that the righteous will always receive a righteous person's reward, But sometimes it doesn't work out and it doesn't make any sense to us. We put in all the effort and we expect fruit at the other end of our effort and we don't get what we work for. We just live in a world that sometimes or many times just doesn't make any sense. We planted a garden in our yard and there's these particular flowers that we put and they haven't bloomed yet. And this was like weeks ago, and they still haven't bloomed yet. And we thought we did everything right. We went to the greenhouse and talked to them and, and tried to figure out what's going on. Do we need to do anything differently? And they're like, no. Like, nobody has any idea why these particular flowers haven't bloomed yet, even though the others like it have bloomed. It makes no sense to us. It makes no sense to the experts. 
Right? Sometimes things just don't make sense. The prideful are rewarded. The wicked are honored. The person who works hardest gets passed over for a promotion. We maintain our vehicles, but they still break down at times. We say the right things and try to do the right things, but still find people angry with us. We do our best to try to rectify the situations, and somehow, some way, we end up making things worse. It's an irrational world. More than that, it's, it's a world of disharmony. This is one of the most complicated watches in the entire world. Is the, is the Philip Caliber 89 watch. And one of the reasons why it's the most complicated watch in the world ever made is because it's, it consists of over a thousand, like 1,700 pieces. You can imagine 1,700 little pieces in a small containment that tell time, that tells other things as well. And all of these little pieces have to be working together in order to tell the time rightly, right, accurately, consistently. And the world is like a watch with all these intricate pieces, all these components that have to work together in harmony. But the problem is that it isn't in harmony. Right? You don't have to be a genius or a mathematician or a scientist to know that there is something deeply wrong with the world. And the scriptures tell us that there's a wrench in the system, and that wrench is sin. The very beginning, we see this in Genesis chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve had committed sin against the Lord, transgressed the commandment of God, that is when the wrench of sin was thrown into the world. And then we read of the consequences of sin in Genesis 3.14, the Lord God said to the serpent who tempted Eve to sin against God, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So we see that one of the consequences of this wrench of the system is that there is now that we have made an enemy. Satan, the ancient serpent, the one who wants nothing more than to bring down as many people into the hell that he lives in. That he's after you, he's after me, he's after everybody in the world. He's the great liar, the great deceiver of the world. That he is always, especially against God's people, He's against the offspring of woman, yes, in a natural sense, and we see this in different places in the scriptures, from Pharaoh killing all the children, the male children in Egypt, to fast forward in Jesus, the new king in Herod, intending to kill all the male children because he saw Jesus as a threat to his throne, but specifically to the spiritual offspring of Eve, in other words, the righteous the consequences continue. Genesis 3.16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Among other things, we see here then a consequence of this wrench of the system because of sin is that there is now this enmity 
in marriage relationships. The most, one of the most foundational relationships of any human society, that there is often strife and enmity. There is tension so that then marriage, in order to work in a harmonious manner, requires a great deal of work and dedication. Which, by the way, then spills over into other horizontal relationships as well. The consequences continue. Genesis 3.17, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So one of the other consequences of sin is that, that there is this strife and enmity between man and his relationship to creation or relationship to his work. Right, work isn't always enjoyable, is it? Work isn't always peaceful, tranquil, but work sometimes or perhaps even oftentimes is met with hostility. It is strenuous sometimes even infuriating. It's all because of the wrench in the system, which is sin. Sin is this repugnant, stubborn weed that was planted in the garden of God's good creation by the toil of man's disobedience. And its repugnant vines have spread rapidly and enveloped the entire world and everything in it so that there is nothing that is untouched by the vine of sin. It's like a house that is unkept. When you see the front yard with large, tall grass and weeds everywhere and vines crawling up and through and around the house, it sort of takes over. And like a vine that might choke the life of a flower, so sin is this repugnant vine that chokes the life in the heart of man, withdrawing the life out of man, at the same time inserting its corrosive venom into the heart of men. And its roots are deep. Its intention is to drag people down to the ground and below the ground to where even Satan himself resides. Then Genesis 3.24, the ultimate consequence of this sin, he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So not only are horizontally is there brokenness in the world, but most importantly, this is vertical brokenness, this relationship between God and man. The most foundational relationship. And this speaks to the world and its meaninglessness. In verse 16, the teacher says, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth. How neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep. Romans chapter 8 tells us that the whole creation is subjected to futility. The word futility there is the same meaning of the word vanity in Ecclesiastes. Vanity, meaninglessness, it's futile. And the teacher tells us he applies his wisdom, his mind, to understand the business that man gives himself over to. It. He's not considering every tiny little thing that man gives himself to do in his life. 
neither is he considering what kind of work man generally gives himself to, but he's just essentially, he's much more general than that. He's considering what exactly does man give himself to in the few years of his life? What does man pursue? What is she after? What are they looking for? What are they desirous of? What is it that they're trying to discover? And he gives himself to this, trying to figure all this out. But what's the connection between this and this application of his wisdom to what came before and sort of the the senselessness and the irrationality of the world? Well, as he said elsewhere, and he continues to say here, is that as long as man continues to look ultimately for the deeper meanings of life in the world, he's never going to find it because he's looking for it in a broken system. It's never going to satisfy. And here we see sort of the, the value of the book of Ecclesiastes because Ecclesiastes continues to get us to think deeper about what we're really after. Like, what are you searching for? What appetites of the heart are you trying to fill? Right? And as long as man continues to try to fill those appetites, those spiritual appetites with things of the world, it's only going to increase that appetite. And it will never satisfy him. And then we have this strange commendation. He says, I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So he commends joy. It what it means to, to, to loud something. It's a form of praise. It is to commend it, like if you're commending someone. I commend to you this person because uh, he has a, an impeccable character, because he has a dedicated work ethic, because he has years of experience. So I commend this person to you for your consideration and that you should hire this person. It's the same idea here. He commends joy. He says, this is worthy of your attention, worthy of your consideration, and also worthy of your application. You should have joy. He praises joy. Which still seems strange. Like, what does that have to do with it? Okay, so things are irrational in the world. I can't make sense of everything that's happening in the world. I can't much less make sense of the things happening in my own life. So your answer is joy. Have joy. Pursue joy. Apply joy. It's a strange something strange to commend. But secondly, I think it is a right commendation. It is a right thing to commend. It says, I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. He applies his heart to know wisdom and to see what man ultimately is after in his life. Then verse 17, then I saw the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Might at that point be talking about himself. Even he cannot find out or discover all the works of God. But he's commending joy. But first, let's consider 
the nature or the kind of joy he's talking about and where this joy comes from. I think we can do that by first observing what this joy is not. As a contrast to the kind of joy that he's commending, I think Exodus chapter 32 tells us of the kind of joy that he's not commending. Exodus 32 verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in the ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. So notice the kind of praising, the kind of worship, or the kind of joy that we see here in this passage. First, this is a man-made joy. It tells us that these people brought their gold to Aaron, who took it and fashioned it into a golden calf, an idol to be worshipped. It was a God created with the hands of men. And it is a joy that comes from man's own creation. So first, there's a man-made joy. Second, it is an idol-centric joy. They say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And so they worshipped it. They praised it as a God who delivered them. But this wasn't the God who delivered them. Even though they were looking for God, they wanted to see God, they wanted to worship God, they fashioned God in their own image, and they worshiped this idol that actually wasn't God. And so this was an idol-centric joy, where the focus of worship was on this lifeless object. And thirdly, this is a sin-filled joy. It tells us that the people sat down to eat, and drink, and rose up to play. What kind of play were they engaging with? Were they playing board games? Nope, probably not. One scholar says that this is a Bacchanalian kind of joy. It comes from the word Bacchus, the Greek god Bacchus, who is the god of wine and ecstasy. So in other words, the kind of play that the people engage with was one characterized by unacceptable behavior in the eyes of God, given to excessive drinking, most likely, that kind of behavior also of a sexual nature. So this was a sin-filled kind of joy. This was a godless kind of joy. This is no fear of God kind of joy. And to have this kind of joy, right, it's not doesn't mean that they have to meet all three of these criteria, even just meeting one of these criteria makes it a godless kind of joy. This is not the kind of joy that the teacher is commending. So what is he commending? He says in Ecclesiastes 2.26, 
For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. There's a kind of joy that can only be received by God. There's only... It's a kind of joy that only God gives and is given to those who walk in the fear of the Lord, who accept God as God, as a creator of all things, God as the object of their worship, God as the object of their greatest devotion and love. And because God has set his son as the savior of the world who came into the world to die on the cross for sins of his people, and has made Jesus Christ as the focus of all worship, the one who has this joy that comes from God is also the one who worships Jesus as Savior and devotes his or her life to following Jesus. So God gives this fear of the Lord, this this joy that comes from the Lord. It is a joy that trusts and treasures Christ. This is a joy that is Christ-centered, a Christ-centered joy that maintains its Christ-centeredness, even as the person enjoys God's good and gracious gifts. Whether it be very little, whether it just be the basic necessities of life, eating, drinking, those are all provided by the hand of God. Or if God was gracious to you, has been gracious to you, and has given you more than those basic necessities, is enjoying those things that God has given to you to the glory of God. that these things enhance one's joy in God. The difference between the joy of the world and the joy that comes from God is that this joy maintains a holy composure. It maintains a holy attitude. It maintains a holy self-control. It maintains a holy benevolence. It's also focused on giving towards others. And it maintains a holy reservedness. The one who walks in the fear of the Lord takes the precious gifts that God graciously dispenses into his or her life, and these are just objects that ultimately just enhance the person's joy in the Lord. There's a joy that recognizes the difference, that there's a vast difference between the rays of the sun and the sun itself. You might enjoy the light of the sun, you might enjoy its warmth, but it is into the sun But the person who walks in the fear of the Lord recognizes that the gifts are not in an end end of themselves. They're not to be worshipped, but they are objects that lead to the worship of the one who is the son who has given graciously to your life and my life. So this is the kind of joy that the teacher is commending. He wants us to pursue this joy, to apply this joy in our lives. And this is a joy that we can and should have. And one reason being because of divine assurance. Ecclesiastes 3.9 says, What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Man is always in search of meaning and purpose and identity. And it's his search for these things that leads 
sadly, to unfortunate consequences. It leads to sin. It leads to emotional damage, physical damage, and especially spiritual damage. And what Ecclesiastes is saying here in this particular passage is that God has put this eternity to man's heart. Man is after this, this transcendence, this ultimate meaning and purpose. And yet, as long as man continues in the separation between God, is that man will continue to search for these things in the world and never find it. It's like God has put this mystery in the heart of man that he has to understand and he has to know but he doesn't have the key to open the mystery. And the key to unlocking the mystery is to walk in the fear of the Lord. But even as we walk in the fear of the Lord, right, for those of us who walk in the fear of the Lord, who know Jesus Christ as Savior, it doesn't mean that we know all the answers to all of life's mysteries. It doesn't mean we know all the answers to all the questions. But there are certain things that we do know. And what we do know is that God is in heaven and that God is working. That God has not left his creation, much less has God left his people. But God continues to work. An ancient philosopher said of Pythagoras, another ancient philosopher, that Pythagoras taught nothing to his disciples before silence. And that the first meditation for one who meant to become a wise man was wholly to refrain the tongue of words. This was the first rudiment of wisdom, to learn to meditate and to unlearn talk. That is certainly wise. I think the Proverbs also affirm that as well, that sometimes it is better, it is wiser to be silent and to speak. And God said the same thing much earlier, though much more concise. Psalm 46, 10, in his wisdom, God says, Be still and know that I am God. There's a lot of chatter in the world. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of bickering. There's a lot of crying out. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of hostility. Right, we continue to, to listen to what's going on and read and watch. And I'm not saying you shouldn't keep up with everything that's going on. But you continue to listen and watch, it all just becomes just loud noises. Wouldn't it be better to sometimes shut off the television, turn off the podcast, put away the newspaper, get away from the social media, just sit, be silent, be still, and meditate and remember that God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. God is in control, and we can always trust God. Sometimes God speaks loudest in the form of a whisper. The question is, do you ever sit still and be silent long enough to listen. I 
Another reason why we can and should have joy is because of divine providence. It speaks to what I've already just said, but to to sort of elaborate on it a little bit further. We have the assurance that God is working. We have the assurance that there is a God in heaven and he does whatever he pleases, but we also trust in the divine providence of God. And this helps us to continue to have joy in the Lord. In John 5, 17, Jesus says, My Father is working until now, and I am working. I like how the NIV reads. It says, My Father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working, Jesus says. God does not take breaks. God continues to work. Jesus continues to work. Just because Jesus finished his work on the cross and is seated at the right hand of God, does that mean that Jesus has stopped working? Just because God established the Sabbath day and rested on the seventh day does not mean that God took a break from everything as if there was an absence of responsibility. No, the Bible tells us that God continues to hold the entire universe up with the, by the word of his power. So that if God ever took a break, everything would just crumble. God does not take breaks. Jesus does not take breaks. And we know that even now, he's interceding on behalf of the saints. And he has promised that he will maintain and keep all those who are given to him by the Father. Because Jesus continues to work is the reason why we have Romans 8.28 written for us, where it tells us that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. God might be working in mysterious ways, ways that you may not be aware of right now. All that you need to know and remember and believe is that God is working. Your responsibility and my responsibility is not to have all the answers and to know exactly how God is working. Our responsibility is just to simply take him at his word and trust that he's working. Human beings are terrible at multitasking, Though some are better than others, I am the worst at it whenever I try to. Some people actually are good at it. My wife, for example, can type on a computer and look at you in the eye and engage in conversation, which I find very creepy every time she does it. But generally speaking, it is almost impossible, or some say it's actually impossible for a human being to do two different things at the same time to do them well. But God is the omnipotent multitasker. He's not like us. He can uphold the entire universe by the word of his power and narrow his focus to nations and control warring nations for his own glorious purposes and even more narrow his focus to know to see what's going on in our country and, and work those things out for his own glory, for the good of his people, and even more narrow his focus to your individual life personal life and my personal life and weave and control all the different events and situations in your life and my life and work them for his glory and for our good. And he can do all of that perfectly all at the same time. Romans 8.31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for his all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or famine or persecution or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor sins, nor the sins of others done to us, nor societal hostility, nor terrible bosses, nor anti-Christian legislation, nor physical injuries, nor disabilities, nor sickness, nor age, nor marital strife, nor loss of relationships can ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is working and is working even at this very moment as we speak. Even though though we don't understand, we don't always see it. In a watch, probably the most important part of a watch, the most important component is the movement. Is the engine of a watch. It's what keeps all those components running harmoniously together. God is the, the great movement of the watch of the world. We don't understand his ways at times. We don't always see it. But his word tells us that God continues to work. He continues to move things forward to his glorious purposes. John Piper once said, though it speaks to the purposeful sovereignty of God, which is his authority over all things, I think it also speaks to providence as well. The biblical authors do not bring up the issue of God's purposeful sovereignty. We might add his purposeful providence over sin, merely to validate a theological viewpoint, but rather to humble human pride, intensify human worship, shatter human hopelessness, and put ballast in the battered boat of human faith, steel in the spine of human courage, and love in the human heart that sees no possible human way forward. Lastly, we can have and should have joy because of divine revelation. When you read read literary fiction, you don't ever go all the way to the concluding chapter, you don't ever go to the end just to see what the end is like, because... It doesn't really make sense. It's not going to make a whole lot of sense. You're not going to really enjoy it that much because what comes before, the beginning and middle, is what's helpful. It's what helps you to understand the end and enhances your anticipation and excitement and your joy in the end. What we have in the scriptures is a story, a factual story, a true story of God who created all things and then the tension that sin brings into the world, especially between God and man. And how God seeks to bring ease and resolution to that tension through Jesus Christ. And then after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have the history of the early church. But then after the last apostles of Jesus die out, we don't have any more in biblical revelation written for us. So we don't know the rest of God's story. But what we do have is a fast-forwarding 
to the concluding chapter, to the very end, which will occur in a time that we do not know. And we see this so vividly in the book of Revelation that tells us what is the end. We may not be able to make sense of the world. We might wonder what in the world is going on, what is happening in the world, what is happening in my life. I can't understand these things. And no matter how much I think about these things, I just can't figure out why or how or make sense of it all. But this is why the book of Revelation is given to us. This is why the picture of the end is given to us. In Revelation 21, we have this wonderful picture of what the end is like. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And in verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut day by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. We have this written for us that no matter what happens today, no matter what happens tomorrow, no matter what happens a year from now or 10 years from now, whether it's in the world or whether it's in my own life or in, my, in your personal life, no matter what happens, you know what the end is going to be like. You know how it's all going to conclude. You know the final chapter. The thing about this story is that it hasn't ended yet. God is still writing his story, and your life and my life are, st- are part of that story. And we know that God is working and orchestrating and providentially working in the things that happen in the world and even in our own personal lives for our good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We don't have to understand how things are functioning right now. We don't have to try to make sense of it all in order to have this joy in the Lord. That's why Thessalonians tells us that we are to encourage one another with these words. That is the coming of Jesus Christ. This is written for our encouragement, so that no matter what happens, we know how it's all going to end. I don't have to understand how a watch works in order for me to enjoy a new watch. Lack of understanding what is going on should not steal our joy but knowing how it all ends and knowing that God is working personally in our lives and in the world will only enhance when we come to that concluding chapter. God-centered, Christ-glorifying joy is possible in any and all circumstances when you live with the end in mind. It's like a jigsaw puzzle you're trying to put together. 
right, the box on the cover shows you the finished product, shows you the picture. And the puzzle itself is intricate, it's difficult. There's so many pieces. And we don't always know how they fit. Sometimes we have the pieces, sometimes we don't. But we have the picture to show us what this all looks like. The world is like this jigsaw puzzle that doesn't really make, mean, doesn't really make sense. But we have the finished product. We know what it's going to look like. And that gives us joy. So we can take heart. You can be of good courage. Because God is working. And he will bring about the end, which will be glorious for the saints of God.